Psalm 9, verse 1, to the chief musician upon Muthlaban, a psalm of David. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, has not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, in the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higayan, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. King David opens this psalm up. He says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. He is praising the Lord with his whole heart, with his whole being. He is holding nothing back. We have ample reason to praise God this morning. We have ample reason to worship him, to thank him, to praise him. We have all the reasons to do so, first of all, in salvation and redemption. The fact that the Lord gave his life on the cross, that we can be forgiven of sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, conquering death. This is not just an old story. I used to go door knocking with a guy and he would, you know, the person would answer the door and he'd say, yeah, we're here to tell you the old story. It's not just an old story. This story, I know, there, I know there's a song, I've heard the old, old story, how Savior came from glory. And I will sing the old, there's a song, I, I, I'm not going to get lost in the hymns this morning. But I mean, I know that in the hymnals, we refer to it as the old story. And the hymnals are beautiful. And the hymnals point to the gospel. Not trying to criticize that at all. And if you've used the term the old story, not criticizing you either, but it's a story that never gets old. You ever have a movie that you could watch it over and over and over again? And it never gets old. Do you have a favorite movie like that? I do. I've got like two or three of them. The gospel never gets old. It's never just the old story because it's not old. It is, the, it is probably 
the, no, it's not probably, it is the most relevant story that we have in our time, and it will always be the most relevant story. The forgiveness of sins, to be able to put behind the sins that you have committed, the mistakes you have made, the decisions you have made, the, you know, you may still be dealing with some of the fallout, but the condemnation and the spiritual consequences of that have all been done away with for you. You're free now. You're free now. You don't have, you're not in debt to God. You're not in debt spiritually. You are free now. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross. You can live with confidence. You can live with hope. You can, you can walk in forgiveness. You can walk in freedom. You can live in forgiveness. You can live in freedom. You're free now. Nothing's hanging over your head. Nothing is hanging over your head. And in the resurrection, conquering death, opening the gates of heaven, it's one thing to live free in this lifetime. But if there's nothing beyond this life, what do we really have? If all we have in this life is this life, and there's nothing beyond this life, then we're all wasting our time here. Go execute your business plan. Get rich. Enjoy it. Invite me over for a barbecue. I'll, I won't invite you to a barbecue because I don't barbecue. I grill. There's a difference. I haven't been grilling lately, okay? I just want to put that out there. But no, we have the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that if we have been reconciled to God by his death, moreover, we shall be saved by his life. It's his life, his resurrection, his presence at the right hand of the throne of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. That's why we sing the hymns. That's why we sing the hymns at the funerals. That's why we say things like, he's in a better place and we'll see him again. And Brad Paisley sings that song, When I Get Where I'm Going. Okay, that's why we have that confident expectation. That's why we have that hope is because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's all we need to praise him. That, that is the only reason we need. We've been redeemed. We've been saved from death. We've been saved from condemnation. We have been transformed. God is working in our lives today to transform us into the people he intended on us being. And that transformational process, it gets messy sometimes. And you trip and you stumble sometimes. And you make bad decisions. And you throw a fit sometimes. And you yell at somebody sometimes. And, 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 but God is still working in your life. He's still transforming you. That's a reason to praise him. Why is that possible? How is that happening? It's because of the gospel. We have blessings in life. We got bagels and bananas and oranges and water bottles. Those are blessings. There are a lot of Christians meeting this morning that have nothing to eat. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. We're blessed. We're blessed. We have blessings. Warm homes. We just count your blessings. Let's see, there's, for me, there's six of them in the room right now. Number seven had to go somewhere else this morning. With everything God has given us, we should praise him with our whole heart. No caveats, no disclaimers. I'm praising God for this, but not for that. Corey Tim Boone was in a German concentration camp. She praised God for the lice. She praised God for the lice. But the lice was what was protecting them from the German guards because the German guards knew they had lice and they didn't want it. So y'all just stay in there. She praised God for the lice. You know, we were talking about dairies this morning. 
And berries have a unique uh, aroma to them. We were at a track meet in Dublin this week, and there's a lot of dairies around Dublin, and the wind was blowing from the direction of the dairies. And one of my kids says, I smell something. I said, that's the dairies. To us, that's a repulsive smell. Unless you've ever worked in the dairy business, then you smell money. To Corey Tim Boom, to her, that smell was freedom. Because that's how she rode out of that camp was on the back of a manure truck. You take the most awful thing someone can go through and she's still praising God. No caveats, no disclaimers on this praise, no holding back. King David understood just how good God was to him. And so he praised God with his whole heart. King David had gone from being a shepherd boy to being the king of Israel. And I don't know where in the timeline of David's life this psalm was written. But if you look at David's overall life, you can see the blessing of God on his life. He was taken from being a shepherd boy to being the king of Israel. He was given an amazing military victory over Goliath. He had military victories throughout his entire career. He was a victorious king. He was a king that sinned against God. We talk about Bathsheba. We talk about Uriah. And we thought, oh, that was horrible. But that wasn't the only sin David committed. David sinned repeatedly. He had several issues, but yet God saw him as a man after his own heart. And God continued to work in his life. And David understood firsthand and in this amazing, magnificent way just how graceful God really is. And so he praised him without holding back. No caveats. And David goes on to say, I will show forth the, all thy marvelous works. Not only would David praise God, he would also demonstrate God's greatness through his works and give us reason to praise God ourselves. You read the Psalms, and you read the Psalms, and you see David praising God, and it reminds you of your things in your own life you should praise God for. It reminds you why you should praise God. It reminds you the reason God is good, even though things at that time might not be good in your life. He, in the Psalms, truly showed forth all the marvelous works of God. To us, praising God should not be a forced action. Praising God should not be something that we struggle to do. It should not be something we forget to do. It should be something we are prone to doing. We should be prone to praising God. We should be prone to worshiping God. We should be able to take stock of our lives, see what God has done, and be able to praise him for it. This should be something we should be able to do. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to say praise the Lord every third sentence whenever you're talking. It doesn't mean that you need to... Hey, post inspirational stuff on Facebook, okay? But it doesn't mean that you always have to be posting inspirational stuff on Facebook every 15 minutes. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you need to be able to see God's wonderful nature, his grace, his love, his mercy, his provision, and everything that comes through your life, and you need to be able to praise him for it. That's what King David did. It should be something we're prone to do. And David goes on to say in verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. God's blessing in our life should give us joy. The Christian life is a life of happiness, a life of joy, a life of gladness. Despite all of life's frustrations, at the end of the day, we should find joy and peace in our Lord. 
That's how the ninth psalm opens up. And it goes on to praise God for the victory. It goes on to praise God for his salvation. And then in this psalm, King David makes the plea for God's mercy personal. And that's important. Because we come to church and we talk about God. We talk about God's grace. We talk about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. We talk about God's redemption. And oftentimes we get academic with this. And we talk about this in theory. Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's wonderful. All them sinners out there, he died for them. It gets powerful when it becomes personal. That he died for my sins. That he's transforming me. That he redeemed me. That when he comes to rescue his people from this earth, he's rescuing me. Psalm 9 gets personal here in a little bit. First, we're going to be praising God for the victory. In verses 3 through 4, when mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. David faced problems. He faced adversities. He faced highly discouraging situations. But these problems paled in comparison to God. There wasn't a problem that God, that there wasn't a problem that David had that could even compete with the glory of God. David's son is rebelling against him and trying to have him executed. God is bigger. The Philistines are attacking again. God is bigger. Whatever is happening, God is bigger. In David's mind, God was bigger than all of his problems. And so David focused on the Lord and not his problems. Not only that, but David praised God, declaring that the victory that he may not have materially seen yet, but he knows is coming, the victory was due to God's presence and the fact that God maintained his right and his cause. David was a victorious king. He won battles. He won wars. He led Israel through a time of economic prosperity. But David didn't hold a press conference where he said, look at me, I'm the greatest that ever was, and I'll be the greatest that will ever be. And I, No, he's, he's praising God for this. Because he knows that the reason his enemies and his problems collapse in front of him is not because he's a great king, but it's because God's presence is there. God is the one staring down these problems. God is the one defeating these enemies. And David found peace in that. He found peace in knowing that as long as God was on his throne, all the problems and adversities he faced were going to amount to nothing. No weapon formed against you will prosper. The Bible didn't say there wouldn't be a weapon formed. It just said that no weapon formed against you would prosper. It will not accomplish its desired goal. Because there's not a single weapon out there that can kill you. All it can do is remove your presence from this world and transport you to the next. But if you know the Lord is your Savior, you cannot die. So you don't need to fear mass shootings. You don't need to fear nuclear war. You don't need to fear the coronavirus. You don't need to fear whatever. They're, they're going to come up with something next. Um, give it six months to a year, there'll be something else in the news that we're supposed to be hiding under our couches from. Okay, Whatever it is, it cannot prosper. Not only has God maintained David's right and his cause, 
but he has maintained ours as well. The world has been working to exterminate Christianity for 2,000 years. From the moment Jesus was nailed to the cross, the world has been working to exterminate Christianity. The crucifixion of Jesus was to exact revenge on him from the Pharisees. The Pharisees cursed as any man that hangs on a tree. They wanted him nailed to that cross because they wanted to be able to tell all of their followers that he was cursed. The Romans nailed Jesus to the cross and hung him on the hill of Calvary so that they could set an example. That hill where Jesus was crucified is in full view of the Mount of Olives where the people of Israel camped during the Passover. The Romans put king of the Jews over, the, over Jesus' head for a reason. That was to tell the people on the Mount of Olives, don't any of you other people think about being a Messiah. This is what we do to your kings. It was a deterrent. They were trying to exterminate the cause of Christ. They were trying to exterminate Christianity. The Pharisees tried to eradicate it by persecuting it after the resurrection of Jesus. The Romans heavily persecuted Christianity. The Romans ultimately recognized Christianity as the official religion, but then had it altered to suit their purposes, which is where we get Catholicism from. Then those official churches of the state of Rome began persecuting the churches that were not affiliated. There was a persecution that accompanied the Dark Ages, the Spanish Inquisition, European persecution, different religious conflicts in America over the years. The Nazis realized that they could not eradicate Christianity. So what they did was they got Christianity off of its primary mission and off of its primary message, the gospel, and got the Christian influencers and leaders of their day to fall in line with what they were doing in, in the Holocaust. And there were some preachers that would not that would not go along with that. And those preachers who would not go along with that, Bonhoeffer being one of them, found themselves in concentration camps. Don't tell me Christianity gave rise to Nazism. Nazism was trying to eradicate true Christianity. You can call yourself a Christian if you'll endorse these ungodly things we're doing. Wait, that sounds familiar. Behind the Iron Curtain, they tried to eradicate Christianity. They tried to alter its message and its purpose through the state churches, but they were trying to eradicate it. The Islamic nations are currently exterminating Christians. The Western world is trying to change the message and meaning of Christianity. The one constant we have in world history is the war on Christianity. Brother Wayman's holding a Bible. That Bible is in a Bible case. That Bible case said that this book is illegal in 53, 53? 52. 52 countries. The world is trying to eradicate Christianity. There has been a war on Christianity for 2,000 years. I'm not telling you that to give you a persecution complex this morning, and I don't have a persecution complex this morning. But what I will tell you is in spite of those efforts, there are 2.38 billion, with a B, 2.38 billion people in this world today who identify as Christian, who practice some form of Christianity. And despite the world's efforts to eradicate Christianity, Jesus Christ ultimately is at the center of the world conversation right now. 
Christianity has persisted throughout the ages and is a major influencer of Western art and Western literature, Western movies, Western thought, Western culture, not because we are smart intellectual people, not because we're intellectually superior, not because we're mighty in combat, not because we're great at politics, but be, and not we have persisted, but we have persisted because God has been the one to maintain our right and our cause. Without God's intervention, the gospel did not permeate the entire Roman Empire in one gen, in one generation. With, without God's intervention and his maintaining our right and our cause, you would not know who Elizabeth Elliot is. The prominent presence of Christianity proves its truth. God, who sits on his throne and judges righteous judgment, has preserved his word and his gospel in this world by preserving his people and maintaining our cause. And therefore, we don't need to fear. There's a lot of fear peddling going around. Christianity is losing its marketplace in the American ideals. We don't need to fear that. We've always been the outliers. If these churches keep closing down, we'll wind up in a world without churches. That idea runs contrary to the words of Christ himself. When when the Lord said that he would give us the he would give to Peter the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Would not prevail against it. Would not prevail against the kingdom. God has maintained our right and our cause. He has given us the victory. We are victorious. As a people, as a movement, as a theology, as a doctrine but also individually. You are where you are because God has worked in your life. Y'all ever see those pictures like how did they get there? You know, you got a turtle on a fence post and different things like that. There's one where there's a pickup truck and a tree. You know, how did it get there? How do we get here? I don't know if I'm the turtle on the post or the pickup truck and the tree. But we get here because this is where God put us. Verses 6 and 7. David says, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. Thou hast destroyed cities, and their memorial has perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. David says, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. David appeals to the enemy. He's warning them of the coming eternal destruction, the perpetual end. That's eternal destruction. David is appealing to the enemy. He's saying, hey, y'all are, are going to be defeated. This, God is going to be victorious. God is going to overcome. O thou enemy, what's David doing? He's reaching out to them. He's pleading with them. He's pleading with them because he sees the severity of the judgment of God and he wants them to flee. Like David, shouldn't we want to see people repent and escape the judgment of God? This is why our message centers around the gospel. If we win the political battle but we lose the soul, we've still lost. We've still lost. David proclaimed that God would endure forever. This means that our salvation will endure forever. And we are looking forward to the day that the Lord rescues us from this world and takes us into his kingdom 
where we will live with him in peace and prosperity forever. And we should want to take people with us. And as we've learned in past weeks, we can trust the righteous judgment of God. So David, he's praising the Lord for the victory. Then he praises the Lord for salvation, verses 8 and 9. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. Y'all ever, are y'all ever afraid of being sued? And if you are sued, you go to court, what are you worried about? You're right. You were trying to do the right thing. You were doing the best you could. You're worried that that judge, that jury is not going to see it that way. And you're going to get an unjust judgment against you. Going to court's a scary thing. But yet our judge is righteous. Our judge is not going to make a mistake. God will judge the world in righteousness. He will be fair. He will be more than fair. You can trust him. He will minister the judgment to the people in uprightness. His judgment, by the way, his judgment will be a good thing. It'll rescue us. It'll end sin. His judgment will be a good thing. The Lord is a righteous judge, and his judgment will bring about the eternal peace and the, and the safety and the, the eternal blessing that we are looking forward to in heaven. But the Lord is also a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. The judgment of the Lord is coming, but we can be shielded from that by seeking refuge in him. And that refuge is found when you repent and you trust him. And the refuge in time of trouble is a reference to how we can find peace in God, even in the storms of life. David praised God for this salvation. We should praise God for this salvation as well. In verses 10 and 11, he says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that forsake thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. Those who know the Lord will trust him. That sounds basic. That's like, duh. That's some high-level theology, Brother Leland. Those who know the Lord trust him. Think about it. Those who know the Lord will trust him. If you know who God is, you will trust him. If you know his character and his being, you will trust him. If you know his mercy, his power, his forgiveness, his love, his authority, if you know him, you will trust him. If you do not trust the Lord, it is because you do not know him. People who reject the Lord, they do not know him. People who do not trust the Lord, they do not know him. How do you get to know the Lord? You get to know the Lord by reading his word, by reading the scriptures, by learning who he is by the written word and the documented accounts of God moving. You read what God says about himself. You read what the prophets say about God. You read what God did. You read his word. And in reading his word, you get to know him. And when you know the Lord, you put your trust in him. And that's why Romans 10, 17 says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen. You want to build your faith? Get in the word. You want to teach others to trust the Lord? Get them in the word. Share the word with them. God does not forsake us. He does not forsake those who trust in him. And he does not forsake those who seek him. 
If you know the Lord and trust in him, he will not turn away. He will not leave you behind. And if you're seeking the Lord, he will not turn away and leave you behind. This is why we sing praises to the Lord. That I, in my sinful state, was loved by God, and I was the beneficiary of his patience while I came to faith. In my sinful state, I was loved by God. And it took a while to bring me some 24 years. It took 24 years to bring me to faith. Number of life experiences, number of preachers, number of teachers, number of evangelists. I still can't get over the young lady at Kilgore College. Knocked on my door. Precious African-American young lady. I'm wearing my Leonard Skinner Rebel Flag t-shirt. I'm trying to, that was coincidence, but the rest of it I'm trying to be as annoying to her as possible so she'll leave me alone. She was not letting go. That stuck with me. That stuck with me. And there are other people that did things like that in my life. All this time, I am being exposed to scripture. I was raised up in a church that had a very good doctrinal teaching program. I learned a lot of scripture as a kid. I had a, theolo- I had a seminary level education by the time I graduated high school. It wasn't official, but when I went to seminary, I wound up relearning all the stuff I'd learned before I graduated high school. But in all that, God was patient with me. He was patient with me as the process was worked to bring me to faith. That's worthy of me praising the Lord. And if you look back on your testimony, you can see, if you look for it, if you pay attention, you look back on your personal history, you'll see the same things. You will see certain things that were brought into your life at the right time, and you will see God's patience with you while he brought you to faith. That's worth praising the Lord. God, in his mercy and grace, has given us an eternal hope that though everything is going badly, he is still here. He is still loving us, and he will still rescue us. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And then King David makes the appeal personal. In verses 13 through 14, he says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. After proclaiming God's great salvation, David makes it personal. Even though he is already saved and a man after God's own heart, he cries, have mercy on me, O Lord. And I stand before you, I am saved, I know the Lord is my Savior, and I'm looking forward to the day that he receives me into his kingdom. But even I have those times I need to just stop and look up to the Lord and say, have mercy on me, O Lord. Thinking about God's grace, his mercy, his love, the work that he's done in our lives and his holiness, his righteousness and our sinful state, that should bring you to a point of saying, have mercy on me, O Lord. How can you consider God's grace and amazing salvation without being reminded of your need and once again pray to the Lord for his continual mercy? I'm not saying to continually pray for mercy because you need to to stay continually saved. I'm saying that the the, the being realized and being confronted with his mercy and his grace and your salvation should bring you back to that point, how amazing this is. How amazing this is. Trials and tribulations may drive us to prayer. 
They often do. We start praying when that wildfire turns our direction. We start praying for rain. We start praying when that bank account hits zero. When that ambulance pulls up. When the doctor comes in with the uh, report on those tests. These things drive us to prayer, do they not? Brothers and sisters, being reminded of his amazing grace should also drive us to prayer. And then David gets into the purpose of his salvation. That I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. God saved us to show his mercy and salvation to others. Our salvation should motivate us to show his mercy and salvation to others. And as I'm looking through this, this is convicting. This is something that nobody likes to have preached. But either you care about people being saved or you don't care about people being saved. You either care or you don't. And whether or not you care is an indication of your spiritual health. Charles Spurgeon said that whether or not you cared about people being saved revealed whether or not you were saved yourself. Charles Spurgeon said every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's convicting. That's convicting. That wasn't the quote I was looking for. It's the quote I found. I want to make sure that if I read y'all a quote, that the person I quoted actually said it. But I think it's true. Every Christian is either a missionary or he's an imposter. If you have no interest in seeing people come to know the Lord, you're an imposter. Y'all know Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist? Y'all know that? I'll think about that. Tulip doctrine, predestination, Unconditional grace, irresistible, uh, unconditional election, irresistible grace. All right, think about that for a moment. And think about how I've preached against that all these years. Think about that. Now think about this. Charles Spurgeon. I'm off topic, but I did put this in my outline because I thought this was pretty amazing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a Calvinist, said this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. If Charles Spurgeon were truly a Calvinist, he would believe that those who went to hell were, pre were predetermined, predestined to go there. And that there's nothing you could do to stop it from happening. If he were a Calvinist. That being his belief system, he's still pleading. He is still, I mean, how beautiful is that? That even though I think that this man here is a lost cause, I'm still going to pull out all the stops to reach him for the gospel. And if he goes to hell, at least I will know it's not because I was lazy. Or that I felt myself to be too good to minister to him. I mean, this man believed that there were people who were 
predestined to go to hell. And he's going to beg and plead. They're, they're, they're going to have, I, the picture I get in my mind is this condemned sinner walking to hell with Charles Spurgeon hanging on to his ankle. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? You talk about the passion for lost souls, the passion for the gospel. Where is that with us? In verses 19 through 20, David goes on. He says, Arise, O Lord, and let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in that sight. Well, that sounds pretty, that, that sounds like the opposite of what Spurgeon's saying. But here's, what, here's, how, here's how David wraps this up. He says, Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. The reason David is calling out to God for his judgment and his intervention is he wants the heathen to be reminded that they are mere mortals standing before an all-powerful, immortal God. David is closing out this psalm again by pleading on behalf of the heathen, asking God to remind them that they are in need of his grace. We need to be reminded that we are merely people in need of God's grace, and we need to be reminded that those around us are merely people in need of his grace. Oh, this is an amazing psalm. These things just keep getting better every week, don't they? Or, or, or maybe I'm just reading the Bible differently now. We have no need to fear anything. Because God is in control of all things and he will maintain our right and our cause. He won't necessarily maintain the mansion on the hilltop, but he will maintain our right and our cause. He will preserve us. He will prosper us. He will keep us moving forward in his work. He will keep us growing spiritually, and ultimately he will receive us into his kingdom. His salvation is amazing. It is something that brings hope to the hopeless, that gives true healing. This is something that is so amazing that we need to be willing to put it all on the line to advance his kingdom and to spread his gospel. What, was the, what would be the point of sponsoring that church out in Barstow? It would be for people in a hopeless place to be able to have another avenue of the gospel. What was the point of starting another church in Brown County. What was the point of this? How many churches are in Brown County? There's a bunch of them. How many good churches are in Brown County? There's still a bunch of them. I'm not going to sit here and be so prideful to tell you that I think we're the only church that's got our theology and our heart straight. That's Pharisee thinking right there. There are other great churches in Brown County. Theologically sound, good hearts, doing the best they can. When Jessica and I first moved here, we were constantly meeting people who had come to this area because they felt the Lord leading them here and they were wanting to do something great for the Lord and minister to the people of Brownwood. We ran into a lot of people like that. We weren't the only ones. What's the point of us being here? The point of us being here is to reach additional people with the gospel that may never have contact with the other workers of the Lord in this area. And that's why he called us here. Jesus talked about becoming fishers of men. More evangelists, 
more preachers, more churches, that's a wider net. Wider net, you catch more fish. That's how it works. That's how it works. We are going to see things come up where there are needs. Needs for the gospel to be preached. Needs for the gospel to be ministered. These are going to happen. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be seeing needs to start new churches, although that might be in the cards too. But you will find needs with individuals, people you will come to into contact with, people you will meet face to face. They need the gospel. They need that hope. And when you see a visitor come through here and they sit down and they visit with us and they do services with us, and then they leave, they need the gospel. Pray for them. And if you have the opportunity to minister to them directly, do so. You're not getting in my way when you go talk to a visitor. You're not getting in my way if you call them. If you are able to go visit them. Oh, I don't want to mess up Brother Leland's system. You, first of all, I don't have a system. Second of all, they expect in a competent church that the pastor will reach out to them. Where they know that it's real is when you guys reach out to them. Now, I'm not trying to teach a church growth. That's not the intention here. The intention is to condition ourselves to be in that place where we are consistently ministering the gospel to others on an individual basis. We are showing forth his praises. We are praising God with our whole heart, without caveat, and we are showing forth his marvelous works. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us, this time, this fellowship. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins. We pray that you would forgive us where we have failed to show your marvelous works. And Father, we pray that you would move upon our hearts, that we'd be moved to praise you and to worship you. We ask you to forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.